welcome to Live from Bar Save. This is Chad, and we finally made it. The last episode of the Parlane series. This is the end of the uh, laneway, I suppose, for Parlane. And uh, I'm excited about it. This is the GM special. So this entire episode is going to be focused around Game Masters. It's going to be giving you some of the spoiler things that we've been tiptoeing around for the whole series, and also just a lot of tips and tricks and ideas of how to work certain aspects into your game. Uh, Players, you're welcome to listen also. Just be warned that absolutely everything you hear may ruin some of the uh, more interesting plot points in par length. So if there's any possibility that you're going to be playing in a game in par length and your GM might be using some of these things, then just be warned, it could ruin the game for you. Uh, of course, you always could go the route of just saying, I know something, but my character doesn't, and not using that information in the game. That's a legitimate way to play too, but you may have a uh, reduced effect of some of the surprise that should come from some of these things. Um, you're free to listen for the first couple minutes. We get some basic announcements, uh, but then once we get into the, the meat of the show, you're probably going to want to leave if you're not a GM. All right, time for everybody's favorite part, the disclaimer. Earthdawn is a registered trademark of FASA Corporation. Any use of FASA Corporation's trademarks or copyrighted material is not intended as a challenge to those trademarks or copyrights. This is a fan work, and unless explicitly noted, material it contains is not approved or endorsed by FASA Corporation. A couple of quick announcements before we get going here. The Earthdawn Companion 4th Edition has been recently released. That's available on FASAGames.com. You can get it in a softcover book, a PDF, or they have a bundle of the two combined for $54.95. This book is going to be really great because it fills out some of the higher circle information. So if you want to play characters that go beyond what are listed in the basic uh, GM guide and player's guide, this fills in the talents and spells for those upper circles. Even if you've not reached that point in your game yet, there is a lot of information for you. Uh, there, there are new talent knacks. There are additional thread items, so magic, magic items, magic weapons, things like that. Uh, there's also a really cool system in there called masks, which are like basically a modifier for a creature. So, for example, you have the base stats of the creatures, and then you can add these masks on top of them, which modify the base stats or add some abilities. Uh, for example, you might have one that's for a horror-tainted animal, or you might have another one that's for a creature that is uh, larger than average or has some astral connection to the astral plane, things like that. So what it does is it lets the GM get a lot more mileage out of all of those character, uh, all of those creatures. And in addition to that, there are a lot of creatures in the book. So it takes some of the some of the creatures from the previous editions and updates them. And I believe there are some new ones in there also. Uh, a lot more information on horrors and some optional rules for some other things. We'll be talking to Josh Harrison, 4th edition line developer. He's going to be on, uh, should be the next episode. I've, uh, we should be recording that in the next week or so. And then uh, that'll be the next episode before we get, in, get going into our next series. The next series will be on Trevar, the Merchant City. And that book came out, uh, I suppose it was maybe not quite a year ago. 
Um, that book is really great. I've been going through it. I'm actually not quite to the end yet. I have uh, procrastinated some and I've had some other things going on, but I'm probably about halfway through it and I'm studying as fast as I can to be able to, to be able to talk about it semi-intelligently because semi-intelligent is the bar that we try to set on this show and it's what everyone expects of me. So I'm going to try my best to, to meet that expectation or possibly just miss it slightly. I also wanted to mention one more book that came out recently. It's called The Imagineering Process by Lou Prosperi. You may remember that Lou was on our show a while back. He was the first edition line developer for Earthdawn. And when he was on the show, we talked quite a bit about Earthdawn, but we also talked a little about his first book in this series that's called The Imagineering Pyramid. Now, the first book was about the individual techniques that the Disney Imagineers use when they develop theme park attractions. And the second book in the series, the new one called The Imagineering Process, that's more about the overall process that happens, like everything that you do to take something from initial idea all the way up to finished product and even after release, how to follow up. So I really like this second book because it, kind of gives you a framework to take all of those individual tools that you learn in the first book. It's sort of a framework of how to put that into use. I've got a couple of projects that I'm working on at the moment, and a couple of them were sort of stuck in the mud, and I I had a good idea, but I wasn't exactly sure how to move forward. And this book really solidified my thinking. So I just wanted to mention it here. It's The Imagineering Process by Lou Prosperi. So if you're doing any type of creative project at all or any type of work projects or anything like that, it's something that you can definitely use. So check that out. Okay, time for the spoiler warning. It's now. If you don't want to have any of this ruined for you, if you're a player, uh, then you definitely want to hop off the show now. Uh, If you're a GM and you're still with us, I just want to mention I'm not going to be going into a lot of background detail on some of what we talk about here. I'm going to assume that you've already listened to the rest of the series up to this point. So I may give you a quick reminder in passing on some of the things, but if I talk about charcoal grin or whatever, I'm just going to assume that you know who that is. So if you're fuzzy on any of those points, uh, make sure you go back and refer to the earlier episodes in the series and obviously pick up the the uh, campaign set from FASA. FASAgames.com, you can get the PDF of this campaign set. It's only 15 bucks. So this episode will give you some ideas of what to work with, but you'll definitely want to uh, want to look at the actual campaign set so that you get all of the details. And I can't believe after eight episodes of talking about par length, including this episode, I still look at it and I can't believe how much cool stuff is in there that we couldn't cover. So absolutely pick up the product if you uh, if you are going to play in par length. Well, I thought about how to approach this episode. There are a lot of different things we could talk about. But one thing that I think all groups have in common when they go to par length is they're all, they all have uh, dollar signs in their eyes. Well, probably not dollar signs. I don't think they were dollars. But they have silver pieces and gold pieces in their eyes. And they're all thinking about how to get rich. So that's sort of the underlying uh, thread that runs all through Parlength is that everyone who comes there is one way or another trying to realize their dream of, of hitting the big time and making a lot of money. Not just money, but also fame. But money is a big part of it. 
So I started thinking about some of the large caches of treasure in Parlength, because all through the series, we were talking about all the different ways that you can end up coming up short, all the different ways that you could try to make money. And this area of the ruins is picked over. And over here, there was never much treasure to begin with. It's a lot of uh, crushed dreams <laughs> of how you can't make money in Parlength. So I wanted to focus a good chunk of this episode on the ways that you could. These are the potential big scores that characters could be going after. Now, they are not at all sure things, and some of these are honestly pretty close to impossible. But if you've got characters that really have uh, gold on the brain and, and they're in Parlength, they're going to be thinking about about some of these things. Now, some of the greatest stockpiles of treasure and money in Parlength, unsurprisingly, already belong to other people. So this could involve players kind of planning a heist to try to steal a fortune off of somebody else. Conversely, if you have players that don't want to steal and don't uh, want to play more uh, straight arrow type characters that would not think of doing that, you could run a plot line of someone else in Parlength planning this type of thing and the players could be in a position to try to stop it. So a lot of what I'm talking about here will apply even if the players themselves are not going to try to do this. One very important thing though, if you're going to run a game that centers around extremely large amounts of money and treasure, you need to think very carefully ahead of time about how it would impact your game. If it goes really well and the players have become extremely wealthy, are they still going to want to be adventurers? Are they? It's hard to give them incentive to get out and do things if they're motivated by money and then they get the money. I had a game, my very first campaign, I just miscalculated. I, I didn't realize how much how much monetary wealth I was giving these characters. And I had a couple characters where it was hard to get them to do anything. Like it, it was it really just made it odd after the third session that every character was ridiculously wealthy. So just keep in that keep that in mind. It's not necessarily that you can't go that way, but it will be a major, major turning point in your campaign. The other thing to keep in mind, sometimes it's going to go poorly. So if they're trying to make one of these major scores and it goes against them, they could end up being being wanted criminals and very publicly known for attempting to steal gold off of somebody or steal magic items out of someone's vault. So what would it mean if the entire group was what became wanted? They may not be able to set foot in parlance. They may not be able to go to Thrall. They it would really change the campaign. Now, those could be interesting, compelling storylines, but it's a turning point. So just give some thought uh, about that and possibly even talk with your players outside the game, not in specifics, but about the general tone of where you're wanting to go and just make sure everybody uh, everybody's in agreement about the overall direction of the campaign. Now, one thing that can make plot lines like this interesting is you might have a character, and I see thieves do this a lot. You have a thief character that just wants to be into everything and wants to be pulling off their next scheme. And then you've got another character that's more more morally upright that's like, no, no, we're not going to do that. We don't. That's not the way we are. And you get some tension within the party. A certain amount of that can be really, really good but too much and it can just get to where you don't really have a party you've got 
completely, totally separate interests and you're trying to keep them together. That can can lead to a game that's not a lot of fun for anybody. So just sort of step back and think about the implications of some of what we're talking about here before you pull the trigger on it. But uh, these can be some interesting things to throw into your campaign. So if you do want to do some of these, uh, some of these adventures that would not be more off the cuff, it would involve a lot of planning. This would be a major operation that the characters are going to have to pull off somehow. If you're going to do that, the best thing to do is think ahead at least a few sessions and start dropping these rumors. So start dropping these rumors and clues in the game unrelated to whatever the session of that day is. Start talking about someone around town is talking about all this money that Vardigul maybe has hidden or all this money that Charcoal Grin has got. She's got money and treasure in her vaults. You need to sort of be playing up that angle and making that be something that's on the characters' minds and keep mentioning it and then see the characters, uh, see the player's response. Is that something where they're asking a lot of questions or is it sort of, oh yeah, that's nice, I don't really care. You can sort of that way gauge what direction you might want to take this. And then when you do drop this into your game, it's not just out of nowhere. Now, I would recommend in this type of a game, you're going to want to put a lot of the planning burden on the player characters themselves. And so this shouldn't be something that the GM sits down and figures out exactly what the plot line is like. Uh, for stealing gold off a charcoal grin or something like that. This should be something where the player should tell you what their plan is. And then you kind of come up with a list of possible things that could go wrong. What are some different uh, twists that you can throw at them, but base it around their planning. If they're too lazy to think it through, then they should be punished severely for this. It should not go well. Even if they plan it extremely well, there should be a lot of unexpected surprises. But you don't just completely shut it down. Like, give them an opportunity to succeed. But in some of these cases, and when we get into the details here in a minute, uh, on some of these types of targets that they could be going after, some of these would be extreme long shots, and they need to know that that's what they're doing. Now, the other thing, and players may not think of this, and again, punish them if you need to, if they don't. What do you do if you do have the big score? What do you do with all that money? You got to keep it safe. You got to transport it somehow. If you have items that you're not going to use that are worth a lot of money, how do you convert that into cash? We talked about a little bit in the series about some of the caravans and things like that. But obviously, a major score like this, you are going to draw a lot of attention to yourself. So the players need to think through what they're going to do, because if handled wrong, the success could actually be worse than failure in this case. Uh, It's not going to stay quiet. Haven is basically a small town where everyone's got money on the brain. And they're all going to want to get a piece of whatever whatever the characters just managed to recover from the ruins or or steal from somebody else. Uh, the other thing is if they just even if they keep it secret, you can't just walk around town spending a bunch of money you didn't have yesterday. You're gonna have a lot of people looking at that. You're gonna attract thieves, and word might even spread to Thrall and to other places. So there are a lot of angles to think about 
when it comes to success on a a heist or something of, of this this type of adventure and make sure that the players are thinking through that in any any little gaps in their logic that is an opportunity to throw a, I, I sort of jokingly say punish them, but what I really mean is to throw some difficulties in their path and have those flow out of their lack of planning and have them just smack themselves in the forehead and say, oh, I didn't think of that. Now, you may have some groups that tend to overplan, though. You don't want to spend an entire session or two just sitting there just hearing them talk about all the possible permutations of everything and what they're going to do. That would not be terribly interesting. So you could think a couple ways to handle that. You could consider having some in-game reason why it needs to be planned speedily. So if there's some pressing reason in the game world that this has to happen quickly, that could be a way to put a time limit on them, but have it not feel arbitrary. So that's something to think about. Um, another option, if they really want to get super detailed, they could do their planning away from the table without even having you, the GM, around. And then they could sort of come back and say, okay, this is what our characters are going to do. And then you can take that and do some prep after you know the kind of the general outline of their plan and do some prep and build some encounters around that. So all of that is just general background information that can apply to any a game that's of that type. But now let's get into some specifics of a couple of major targets that are outlined in the campaign set. These are some things that would be on the character's mind if they were looking to get a single one-time big score. Uh, the four that I want to cover are Vartigal's Lore Exchange, if she's got some money hidden there and some options for that. Torgak supplies and goods. Torgak has made a fair amount of money over the years, so he obviously must have some stashed away somewhere. Charcoal Grin, the dragon, has a treasury with quite a lot of money and magical items in it. And the lost royal treasury of Thera that's said to be somewhere in the ruins. So there are varying degrees of information in the campaign set about these. Some of them are fleshed out quite a bit. Some of them are kept more general. Uh, the bulk of this is coming out of the campaign set, but the, some of these are my ideas about what I would do if I was going to run this type of game. So the first one of these we're going to talk about is Vartigal. If you'll remember from our previous episodes in the series, Vartigal is a Tuskrang who set up shop in Haven pretty early on, but not with the focus of trying to make money as an adventurer. She wanted to make money off of the adventurers. So she sells, she buys and sells bits and pieces of lore and ancient documents that the players can use as a way to uh, to go into the ruins and to have some kind of prep and know a little about the areas or maybe get a hot tip on a certain item, things like that. So that's the normal, typical way you use Vartigal in your game. But the book also mentions, uh, it says that she has amassed a small fortune. She's been doing this for a while and she is the place in town to buy your information. So it stands to reason that she's got quite a bit of money somewhere. Now, the book gives a couple options, as it does for a lot of things in par length. It'll say option one, option two, option three. So you have a choice of which way to go, and obviously the GM can always make up their own. If you don't like any of these, come up with something different. Um, option one is that the money is hidden under the floorboards of her shop. So this would basically be a break-in, pull up the floorboards, and see if the money's there. 
Now, the player characters may have heard rumors about this, or it may be something that they have to put together on their own about, I wonder if it's under the floor. It's up to you how you want to play that, but that's option one. Option two is that she has a secure location in the ruins, and it's it's a location that really can be wherever the GM wants. The book doesn't say exactly where it is. It's wherever works best for your campaign. She visits the location once a month with two of the Grabach brothers that accompany her. The Grabachs are, they originally were quadruplets. They were trolls who were quadruplets, but one of them died in the ruins, and now the other three work uh, work for Vartigal and they guard her shop and they're kind of like her assistants and her muscle if she needs protection. Uh, so there are always, there's of these three, they work an eight hour shift each. So during a 24 hour period, there's always one of them on duty at all times. So whichever one is not on duty, she takes the other two uh, once a month and goes to this secret spot in the ruins uh, and hide, she can, you know, add, add her money there. Or if she needs to take something out for some reason, she does that. So it obviously wouldn't be that difficult if the player characters caught wind of this, they could tail her there and, uh, and could try to figure out where the stash is and rob her that way. Option three is that she lives frugally and she sends the money to her village so that they can afford another riverboat. Now, in the book, it was a little unclear. It says another boat. I didn't know if that meant that they're expanding and want to expand their operations or if they're replacing one that was lost or destroyed. Um, If it was lost, if you'll remember from when we talked about the Serpent River, if that was their only boat, which it may or may not have been, but if it was and that was lost, a riverboat being destroyed uh, can really just devastate an entire community of Tuscrang. That's their entire livelihood. It just destroys their way of trade. So it could very well be that she has just sacrificed all of her own money to send to the village to replace their only way of sustaining themselves. So if the player characters want to steal their money, and they find out that this is what's going on, you really want to play up that moral angle. They're just taking taking food out of the mouths of these ports of Scrang that are just trying to eke out a living. So you've got a few different options here. And one thing you can do is you could keep it a little vague in your mind about which option you want to go with. And once they kind of get into it, you could decide the truth of it later. You can put that off to give yourself some flexibility, or you could have one of these be the truth and have the other one be the story that they've heard. So just keep that in mind. Um, It doesn't say in the book exactly how much money this is. So small fortune could kind of be whatever amount you think is going to work in your campaign. So feel free to adjust that amount as needed to make it work. Next up is Torgak's Supplies and Goods. According to the rumor, Torgak has a heavily trapped vault in the basement of his store, and he's got 30,000 pieces of silver there. Now, like all rumors, especially in Haven, obviously sometimes they are just the imagination of some drunken adventurers that came up with a good story. So it's up to the GM to decide the truth of this. Now, the one thing that I think is beyond dispute is that Torgak has made quite a bit of money over the years, so he's probably got a fortune somewhere, but does it make sense for him to keep it in the basement of his store 
where he's close to it, or is that too obvious of a place and he's got it somewhere else? So it's it would really be plausible either way. So it's whatever you want to do. Now, I think it does make sense that wherever he's got this, it is going to be heavily guarded with traps. And some of these could be magical traps as well. It doesn't specifically say in the book, but Torgak himself is not a spellcaster, but he's obviously a very connected individual. So if he wanted to get some custom magical traps made, that would in no way be beyond his means. He would have the connections and the money to pay someone to do that. So feel free to make them whatever kind of traps that you want, uh, as long as it's pretty serious and pretty pretty severe, because this would be a very well-guarded, secure location. So assuming that the treasure is in the basement of the store, how would the characters go about doing that? Well, the one thing I would guarantee not to try is just a frontal assault. If they just go in there swinging weapons and throwing spells, it should be almost certain failure unless you have a group that is massively, just massively powerful. That's not going to work. So they're probably going to need some type of inside help. Uh, this could get interesting with some type of social engineering type of things. So is there someone who has knowledge of the location or the types of traps or something like that, that the characters could trick into giving them information or could they set up some kind of con to get someone who's guarding it away from his post? Those types of things are the things that you should, that the characters, the player characters should be thinking about when they're setting this up. And those kinds of things should be rewarded by the GM. That if they really come up with a creative idea about how to do this, that doesn't necessarily mean it'll succeed. But that should definitely be something that the GM can work with to make an interesting game and to make it make it possible for them. So you kind of come back to the question of who else would know if Torgak had this money stash, who else would know where it is and know some of the details? So has he maybe talked to some of his original cronies who were in his original adventuring group? Um, has a thief maybe attempted to break in before in the past and was unsuccessful but got away with their life and has some information? Now, his deputies, he, his deputies almost certainly would have some knowledge of this because they would be the ones guarding it in a lot of cases. Now, all of his deputies, there's information in the book about them. I'll give you kind of the overview, but there's full stats and everything in there. All of his de deputies are high-ranking members of the Loyal Order of Delvers. So that's got a couple implications. One is these are well-connected individuals themselves. So everyone in town knows them, and they know everybody worth knowing. So if a character approaches them and tries to maybe throw them a bribe to, to uh, let them in or something like that, this, that's going to get around town pretty quick. So that's something to keep in mind. So the characters, if they're going to go this route, should really kind of get to know these deputies and try to find a specific angle of how to get in with them or how to manipulate them in some way. So here are the four deputies that Torgak has from the book and also the GM. You can fill this in if you want some additional characters that will work better in your campaign. Or he's probably going to have some guards that are not necessarily deputies 
beyond these four. So feel free to fill out this roster as needed to make it work for your game. But the ones mentioned in the book are Sealak, the uh, Troll Sky Raider. Sealak sees things very black and white, and he just basically wants to live a simple life and be left alone. He likes uh, relaxing and drinking and just he that's just all he wants to do he wants to put in a good day's work and be left alone and enjoy life he gets upset when people disturb that so anything that just kind of makes his life easy and comfortable he's all for it hook hoof the orc cavalryman his particular uh particular viewpoint is that he hates slavers above anything else So if there are any slavers in town, he'll do anything he can do to give them a hard time and disrupt their operations. This may be a smaller angle in 4th edition now because Thera is not nearly the presence in Bar Save that it used to be. This was a 1st edition product, and when it came out, Theron agents would have been seen in Bar Save on a fairly regular basis. You'd have slavers coming uh, coming and going. You may see some of that now in 4th edition, but this is probably not going to be as big big of an angle. Uh, But basically, he hates slavers to a point where he will just do whatever he needs to to give them a hard time. He's also very proud of his orc heritage to the point where if someone insults orcs, he's going to get drawn into combat very easily uh, if orcs as a whole are insulted. Now, out of all of Torgak's deputies... Irika Shagmane is definitely the the least predictable and the least stable one of them all. She's an orc weaponsmith, and recently she had to slay her own sister who became a cadaver man after dying in the twists. And this experience has really upset Irika, and she has not been the same since. She's been prone to extreme mood swings, and she'll be really up one minute and then just ready to fight the next. She's just kind of a mess, and that could be something that the players could use to their advantage in one way or another. It would be something that if they follow her around a little bit, they would definitely see examples of this, and then they can take that information and start thinking about how to use it to their advantage. And the last one is Dashara Eyes of Straw. She is raising a family in town, which is not terribly common. A lot of people in Haven are single and not trying to raise families in this area because it's a pretty difficult place to be a parent. And she has a husband in town who's a potter and two adolescent sons. And she can become very forceful if she feels that her family is threatened. So that's kind of her trigger. If the player characters could do something to float the idea that something's a threat to her family, they might be able to get her to do things that she wouldn't normally do. Now, aside from the deputies and other people Torgak may have talked to, another thing to keep in mind is uh, what are Torgak's political leanings? And could that possibly be used against him? And like a lot of other things, the book gives three different options. So option one, Torgak hates the Therans, and he will resist them in any way he can as long as he can still appear impartial. Now again, this may be a smaller aspect in a 4th edition game, but Thera is still around, and they probably still have agents there, so this could come into play if you choose to. Option two, Torgak resents Thrall's interference in Haven, and he will resist them whenever possible. So he thinks that uh, the Thrall and the Dwarfs are a little heavy-handed, and he wants them kind of out of his business, and he's going to work behind the scenes to be opposed to Thrall. 
And uh, option three is Torgak really just doesn't like any particular organizations. He's always been an entrepreneur at heart, and he kind of favors the loan operator, someone that's just out for themselves and isn't aligned with a particular government or faction of any type. So that's option three. The, these may or may not be a, uh, a big aspect of your game, but it's something to think about. And uh, just keep in mind also, Torgak is a very public person, so whatever he puts on publicly may or may not be what he is like behind the scenes. So you can make him sort of multidimensional if you want him to publicly put his arm around a Throlic official and then uh, be working behind the scenes to undermine them. That would not at all be out of character for Torgak. He can sort of fill whatever role you need there. Now, depending on the type of group that you've got, what type of characters and the just the preferences of the particular players, they may not be real comfortable with going after the fortunes of people in Haven. So Vartigul or Torgak, that may not be a plot line that's appealing to them. If they want to play a character that's more morally upright and above board, that might feel off limits to them. So if that's the case, we've got a couple other options if they want to go for a truly big score. And these would be more traditional adventuring type things. Uh, these would be opportunities in the ruins themselves. The first one of those I want to talk about is Charcoal Grin. And if you remember from the previous episodes in our series on Parlength, Charcoal Grin is a dragon who's located in the northern part of the city called the Vaults. The book says that Charcoal Grin has a massive trove of loot, that's word for word what it says, and it's stored in several basements in the Imperial Palace. This is far more than any adventurer or even group of adventurers could carry out in a single trip. It says that the cash value of the silver in the vault is somewhere around 350,000 pieces of silver, but that does not count magical items or any kind of other treasure or you know the historical value of any of the artifacts she's got, that would be just the actual cash there. It also mentions that anything taken from her vaults is treasure worth legend points. Now, if Charcoal Grand somehow dies, uh, the book says that the palace would be overrun and swarmed and picked clean by just everyone in the area. So obviously, trying to kill a great dragon is something that the average adventuring group is not going to be able to do, even if you've been playing for years. Uh, but if somehow, if your group is up to that level, or if you have some kind of plot line that you work in, and Charcoal Grin is killed, that would be another major challenge. How would the players get all of this money out of there? They're not going to get it all, but can they recover a substantial portion before word gets out and everyone just descends on the place and takes away everything of value? So that would be a major challenge if you are going to play this type of game. Now, another way you can go, though, it may be possible for a thief or a group of adepts to sneak in and steal some amount of treasure. So maybe the plan isn't to just completely empty uh, completely empty her vaults and take everything. Maybe it's more of a stealth mission to kind of get by and see if you can get just enough. You know, you pick up one or two of these very valuable artifacts or just fill a bag up with some silver. That's still a pretty large amount of, of gain off of one mission. Not to mention the bragging rights, which would translate into legend points in the game. Uh, the one thing to keep in mind, though, is like the other ones that we talked about, 
this is going to take an extreme amount of planning and the players would need to understand that stealing off of a great dragon is very risky. I think they would probably have some sense of that. I mean, it would make sense that there's a lot of risk here, but they need to understand that the risk reward ratio is maybe not very good. So if they're going to go this route, they need to know what they're getting into, at least to some extent. Now, just like we talked about with a potential raid on Torgax, I would recommend in this situation, if you're going after Charcoal Grin, that you put the burden of the planning on the players. So they should come to you and tell you what their plan is, and then you should find ways to improvise the game around that, come up with some difficulties to throw in their path. One of the major ways to do that, the book has quite a bit of background information on Charcoal Grin that we didn't really talk about during the series because I wanted to leave it for now. There are two major options, and you could definitely come up with a lot of different variants. The first option about what her motivation is, is that the the, un, the Unforgivables, who are the people that serve Charcoal Grin, they kind of patrol the area and they, they find any treasure that they, that they find in the area or loot that they take off of characters that happen to be walking around. They bring that to her and she adds it to the vault. So what is their motivation? Option one is that they basically just want to be left alone. They want to raid surrounding villages and just keep their stomachs full and live a basic life of just not having to worry about where their next meal is going to come from. And Charcoal Grin kind of provides them some social stability and some protection, and that's really all they're after in life. They're not particularly evil in any way. They just want to survive and get by just like anybody else. And they happen to be going about it in a way that's uh, not very civilized, but it's what they're doing. That's option one. I think far the far more interesting option is option two. The Charcoal Grin was corrupted during the Scourge, and she intentionally inflicts misery and pain in every way that she possibly can. And the, rem- the members of the Unforgivables share her ideals. They, they see brutality and evil as being a, a thing that's, you know, something to be prized and something to be sought after. And that's why they joined her in most cases, but some of them have actually started to become more corrupt and more evil through their association with her. So if you go this route, Charcoal Grin and the Unforgivables have a much more sinister presence in in Parlanth. Now, option one is better if you want the Unforgivables to be more of a background feature in the game, if you don't want to really have them front and center then probably just go with option one and they're they're basically just just there trying to survive. Option two is better if you want to really use them and charcoal grin as a direct opposition to the players. So think about that ahead of time. Uh, what can make this really interesting is the players are going to be kind of trying to lay their plans and figure out what their plan of attack is. And if you go with option two, they're going up against not just a great dragon, they're going up with a horror-tainted great dragon. And that's something they absolutely would not be able to anticipate. And that's going to mix it up quite a bit and add even more danger to an already pretty dangerous situation. I would recommend, though, that if you're thinking about going this way and having Charcoal Grand be horror-tainted, 
that you give some serious thought to the overall tone of your campaign and how long of a story arc you would like the charcoal grin stuff to be. Because it's sort of like a thing you can't go back from. If you have a horror-tainted great dragon right there in town, that's probably going to be pretty front and center in your campaign. It would be a little hard to pull back from that and do any kind of other things if you want to do some more lighthearted games. It might just seem a little strange. It'd be kind of like, what's the... What's what's the deal with that horror tainted dragon over there? Oh, she's taking the day off, you know. So it's not necessarily that every game would have to be about her, but this would be a major turning point that you really can't go back from. If you find this compelling and you think your players will, this can be a great way to go. Uh, but it does sort of set the tone for quite a bit of your campaign going forward. So just make sure that you think about the pros and cons of that for your particular game. Just a quick clarification here. I started wondering about what I was saying about her being horror-tainted, and I decided it would make sense to pause the recording and go back and look at the book and just make sure I had it right. The book is actually kind of general. Uh, I'll, I'll read a little bit from option two here. It says, Charcoal Grin, corrupted during the scourge, aims to carry on the destructive campaign of the horrors now that their power is diminished. She loves to strike terror into the hearts of others and revels in chaos and destruction. So it's a little more general. It doesn't say the specifics of exactly how she was corrupted and in what way. Um, I was thinking more about that maybe she was horror marked somehow, which I suppose would be possible. But it could be just for whatever reason the Scourge has changed her mind and and warped her thinking. So really, I suppose that's left open to the GM, the specific nature of what the corruption is, uh, to what extent it is, and how that plays out. So it may not necessarily be horror-tainted as far as being uh, horror-marked or anything like that. It could be that extreme or it may not. So uh, I guess it's sort of open-ended, whatever you want that to be. Now, as far as big opportunities to score massive amounts of wealth in Parlength, the absolute top one would be the Royal Treasury. Uh, We've talked about this some in our episodes on the Northern and Southern Catacombs. Uh, But just a quick recap. Before the Scourge, Thera had moved the treasury from the Northern Catacombs to the Southern Catacombs. And in the section on the Southern Catacombs, the book doesn't give a lot of detail about the treasury. It just says the game master decides how much treasure, if any, remains in the vaults and whether or not various creatures now inhabit these rooms. So there are a few different ways to approach this. And uh, one of the things you could do if the players want to search for the treasury, like if you've, again, if you've kind of floated that rumor and they respond to that and it's something that they're like, oh, that sounds awesome. I want to go do that. One approach, if you have a group that's really into dungeon crawling and they like detailed maps and and intricate traps and enemies in certain places you could this is a great opportunity to just map out a section of the ruins in extreme detail if you want to play a more tactical type of game Um, that's not the only way to play it but this if your group's into that this is one of those great things you could do you could have multiple sessions of running down a lead you get into a section of the ruins and they barely escape with their lives, but they end up with a clue that leads them to the next part, the next place that they could search. And uh, basically, finding the treasury, 
this this should be very difficult. And if you do it at all, if you play this, it should be the culmination of an entire campaign. That should be the the highlight. So it shouldn't just be one you know one Saturday afternoon you sit down to play and they walk in the treasury and come out with some gold. This should be extremely difficult. And you could you could make this the centerpiece of an entire months long campaign. So these big moments like that, you want to be very careful not to cheapen them. The player should understand the weight of what it is they're trying to do. So if dungeon crawling is not really your thing, but you still like the story of the catacombs and want to use this, you've got a couple other ways to play it. You can use this as a premise to kind of lure them into the southern catacombs, the area where the treasury uh, should be located according to the history that everyone knows. It should be in the southern catacombs somewhere. Now, the southern catacombs are one of those areas that is left fairly open in in the source material. When we talked to Lou, Pro- Lou Prosperi when he was on before, he mentioned that they didn't want to get too oppressive with the design and map out every single square inch of bar save because the GM needs some open spaces that you can tailor to their own campaign. The Southern Catacombs is the best example of that in par length. It does give you some basic ideas. The main idea is that since it's a fairly open area, that it would be a great place to serve as a lair for any kind of faction or secret society. So this could be a way you have these rumors of the treasury and they go there looking for it and they never find the treasury. But while they're down there, they stumble across one of these hidden bases. This could be the Therans. It could be the Blood Elves. It could be maybe some uh, undercover Throlic agents. It could be, you know, the Hand of Corruption or one of the secret societies. It really could be anything you want. But this would be the perfect hideout or a kind of a sinister lair for whoever wants to operate in par length without being noticed. So that is a great way if you want to play a story, more of a story driven game that's not quite as tactical. They could start out looking for the treasury and stumble upon something else and just have your story expand from there. One final thing you could think about for the treasury this may or may not go over well with your players depending on depending on the personalities and the style but one thing that you see as a common thread through par length in the book is the idea that treasure hunting is harder than people think it's going to be par length is sort of the land of the broken hearted adventurer they all go there thinking that they're going to hit the big time and and they're going to be legendary and make all this money and some have done that but the vast majority have not and you could build up this gigantic you know this gigantic idea in their mind about finding the treasury and how just obscenely wealthy they're going to become and then just pull the rug out from under them and it basically is impossible now you need to find a way to where the story is still a payoff for the characters they should find some way that they feel like it was worthwhile you don't want to just completely slap them in the face and that's the whole thing but there should be this tone to par length that their dreams never completely pan out that's just a major component of what the city is and what better way to do that than possibly the most over inflated dream out there is finding the royal treasury 
that's that is the one thing that's probably on the mind of all these adventurers. And if you can use this as a way of underscoring the fact that everyone comes here thinking they're going to hit it hit it rich, and almost no one does. Okay, I was not planning on doing this, but I still have quite a bit more material that I've prepped for the GM special. I'm only about halfway through it, and I'm already up to about the length of what we do for a typical episode. I'm going to actually make the GM special a two-parter, so I didn't cover nearly as much as I wanted to, but my voice is starting to go, and I've already delayed this episode for a while. I've been promising it for quite a while, so I'm going to go ahead and put this one out, and... Uh, I will have the GM special part two. I have some notes that I want to talk about some enemies, uh, creatures, even some plants that can attack you about a particular horror that I found really interesting. And we also haven't even really talked about any of the special uh, particular magic items that are in Parlanth. There are a ton of those in this set. So I'm going to go ahead and do another episode. I believe our next one is probably going to be the interview with Josh Harrison, uh, as long as that works out as far as scheduling. And then we'll do one more on par length. So it'll come to nine episodes, which is longer than I thought we were going to do. And then we'll go on to Trevar. So uh, I didn't mean to leave anyone hanging here. I just, my voice is going and I, I just want to get this done instead of delaying it and <laughs> delaying it any longer. So I hope you're enjoying this. We'll be back for part two fairly soon. Uh, in the meantime, just have fun with Earth Done, have fun with Par Length, and I will see you next time.